Welcome to another episode of the Matter Over Mind Experience. I'm your host, Master Trainer and Weight Management Expert, Narado Zico Powell. And today, I have a fantastic episode for you. It's with Dr. Carolyn Stone. She's a naturopathic doctor. First two-time guest I've actually had on the show. We talk about thyroid health, so like overactive thyroid versus underactive thyroid, the role that nutrition plays and weight training and the proper ways to weight train or proper ways to train in general if you're experiencing thyroid issues and epigenetics. It was such a fantastic interview. But then something happened. My side of the audio was distorted and it, it doesn't seem that there's a way for me to really fix it. So you can hear it. It just doesn't sound like the same quality that you're accustomed to. And I really apologize for that. So I thought about not releasing this episode, but it's really good. And her quality is really clear. And I want you to hear it. So I apologize in advance, but you're still going to love this episode. And with that being said, let's start the show. Nutrition, gut health, mental health, hormones, and so much more. These all play roles in sustainable weight management. So, I scoured the globe for top experts in fitness, health, and weight loss to bring to you this podcast. So, take a seat and enjoy the ride. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Matter Over Mind Experience. I'm your host, master trainer, and weight management expert, Narado Zico Powell. I didn't mean to say hey, hey, hey that time. I actually had a different opening in mind, but it's already passed. It's hey, hey, hey is all we're going with this time. But today I have um, the first real two-timer on the show. She was with me when I had about 10 downloads a week. It was insane. Like, it was a fantastic episode. And I was like, I really had to bring her out. I mean, I kind of had someone, I think it was Tracy, who came on the show twice, but the second time she was interviewing me. So, mm. but Dr. Carolyn Stone is the actual first two time. I need to like send you a medal or something. Like, <laughs> in his world book of records or something. It's going to be awesome, right? But... For those who don't know her, she's a naturopathic thyroid doctor, and we haven't talked about the thyroid in a while. Mm-hmm. And I love this site. She helps badass women take charge of their thyroid. It's the same intro I use for the last one, and it's the same intro I'm using again because I think I need to like have a t-shirt with that or something. That's, that's <laughs> and of course, your boy never disappoint. I have a hack of the episode for you, and it's how can diet and exercise improve hormone health. You hear that? Dietics, not not popping pills like Skittles. We're talking about how diet and exercise can improve hormone health. So guess what? Stick around for this one. And with that being said, let's welcome Carolyn to the show. Hey, how you doing? Um, oh, I'm doing so good. Thanks again for having me on. I, 
you know, it's it's been a while. I forget exactly when we recorded that first one, but time certainly flies. And I'm super excited to be back and just talking all things thyroid because, you know, that's my bread and my butter. That's what I love to do. And, you know, love just helping women just feel more empowered so they can make good decisions about their health and and have informed conversation with their their practitioners so they don't feel like they're just out of the loop and they're at the whim of the, the medical system. So that's what I'm here to do. And I'm here to listen. And hopefully my audience is here to listen too. And with that being said, what is a naturopathic doctor? That's a great question. So naturopathic doctors, and sometimes I hear it pronounced naturopathic doctors, it's all the same thing. Think of us, you know, we often get termed as alternative doctors, which is always kind of interesting to me because I feel like naturopathic medicine is kind of the OG. We've been around for a while. They tried to, you know, back in the day, naturopathic doctors were running under the radar because people were coming after them, but we just don't die. We keep coming back because the medicine works. So what naturopathic doctors do, I think what really makes us unique and different from conventional doctors. There's a few things. I would say one is the way that we practice our philosophy. So it's not just and, you know, in conventional system, you have your condition, your disease, your symptoms, whatever it is. And then there's a drug that matches with that. That's not how we roll. Doesn't mean I won't prescribe medications, but that's not what I'm here to do. My goal and our goal as naturopathic doctors is to get at the root cause. So if you're having a symptom such as high blood pressure or fatigue or constipation, I want to know why. doesn't mean I'm not going to give you something to feel better in the meantime, but we're here to get at the root cause of your issues and correct that because nobody has symptoms because they have a deficiency in a pharmaceutical drug. They have symptoms because that's their body's way of telling them that something's imbalanced, something's off. And so it's speaking to us and we have to learn how to listen to the body and work with the body and roll with the body. And in naturopathic medicine, we try to get at the root cause using the least amount of intervention possible, right? So if you think of it on the spectrum of things, all right, I can tell someone so many symptoms will clear up just by eating the right foods and moving their body on a regular basis and getting good sleep, right? Staying hydrated, all those things. But on the other spectrum is things like surgery, Right. And there's a lot of doctors who will jump straight to surgery without ever considering all those other options along the spectrum. So my my thought is that naturopathic doctors are here to offer people a different way forward that's different from the conventional system and that that has the least harm possible. That's always my goal is just to get people from point A to point B without causing harm. You know, shouldn't shouldn't be that hard, but it seems to be uh, opposite of the norm these days. Yeah, because we we make it harder than uh, than it actually has to be because of how we've glorified Western medicine and pushed naturopathic doctor to this side. I think I don't know how long Western medicine has been around, maybe a couple hundred years, while naturopathic medicine has been around since the dawn of time, essentially, right? You know? Yeah. Okay, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's no, so you had something to say. I was gonna let you go and say that. Oh no, I was just gonna say, you know, that that's exactly right, and so much of what we do is is we've combined some of the best things, you know, like we've, we use herbal medicine. So we have to give, you know, due credit to herbalists. We use acupuncture. So we have to give due credit to the people that we've learned from, but we've been able to master those things in a way that makes sense for people in modern society. And so that's why I really love it because we find ways to integrate it into the lives that we're living now in crazy 2022. (laughs) 
Yep, and you've had thousands of years, not used, but I mean, I know you're not yeah. thousands of years old. If you are, then you're <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Right? But, you know, <laughs> I've had thousands of years to practice. And you know why my theory is that you don't die? Because when we think about naturopathic medicine, and I, you probably know where I'm going with this, people think about, you know, people doing seances, like just walking around with, with, with you know, making it rain and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah. You know, so all, all that going on, like you can't die. You can't die because you have the power <laughs> of the universe, right? So that's yeah, right. Good. It's our spell. It's our magic. Exactly. The magic of <laughs> being healthy, isn't that? That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Now we're going to talk about thyroid because that's, that's your bread and butter. That's your baby, right? Yes. So what's an, what's considered an underactive thyroid and what are so common symptoms? Yeah. So underactive thyroid, which is more commonly termed as hypothyroidism. So hypo. So we think of hypo, think about everything just being slowed down. So what's happening is that your brain is, is supposed to produce a chemical called TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone. Its job is then to stimulate the thyroid gland in the neck to make active thyroid hormones T3 and T4. So as those hormones are made, this is, this is on what we call a negative feedback loop, meaning that as thyroid hormones are released from the thyroid gland, it sends a signal to the brain when there's enough. And then it tells the brain, okay, you can slow down on your thyroid stimulating hormone production. And then it just keeps kind of trucking along. So it's constantly trying to regulate this, right? So it's not just like a one and done thing. This is a negative feedback loop. And so in hypothyroidism, Typically, what we're going to see is that the TSH is high because your body's trying to make more active thyroid hormone. So the brain is trying to send the signal, hey, we need more thyroid hormone, in particular T3 and T4. We need more T3 and T4. So the TSH is increasing to try and make that happen. But the T3 and the T4 levels are still low. So that's hypothyroidism. So you don't have as many of that of the active thyroid hormone or as much, I should say, of the active thyroid hormone as you should have. And so when you don't have those things, then the thyroid can't do its job as well. And so I think the best way to describe it is just imagine like going into hibernation, right? Everything slows down, right? It might be cold, might gain a little weight because you don't have that fire, right? You don't have those thyroid hormones activating the metabolism. So everything slowed down, your intestines slow down. So oftentimes people are going to have constipation, right? Their skin gets dry. Their hair is not as healthy. Their, their nails are not as healthy. So the nails can be really brittle. Your hair will fall out. So basically it's almost like the body goes into preservation mode because it doesn't have the stuff that it needs to do its job well. So everything down regulates. So you get cold, all of that. Now for women in particular, because hypothyroidism is much more common in women and women are the majority of my practice. So of course I'm a little biased that way, but we often see changes in their menstrual cycles. So their periods can be heavy. They can be painful. Um, sometimes they're skipping periods because women with, we'll get into Hashi's, I'm sure Hashimoto's in a second here, but women with Hashimoto's are more likely to have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So sometimes they're skipping periods. So with hypothyroidism, underactive thyroid, just imagine body's in preservation mode and everything is slowed down. Wow, that does not sound like a good experience. So, I, <laughs> no, it's not fun. <laughs> it's, it's not fun whatsoever. And apparently, you can't just take a pill and it goes away. If that were the case, and I'll just pop a couple of pills and I'll be okay. But Right, right. And of course, there is thyroid medication, right, which can help correct some of the numbers. But you have to figure out, well, why does this person have hypothyroidism in the person? 
first place, right? And then treat that. Yes, medication can be very helpful, especially when numbers, you know, I've had people come in with the TSH of like 30 and normal is from 0.45 to 4.5, right? So you can imagine it's like, okay, we need medication to at least get things under control while we work on correcting the underlying issues. So there's a time and a place for medication, but it certainly is not going to be the magic bullet for everybody. Is there a difference between normal um, TSH levels and optimal? Oh, hundred percent. So it depends on what labs you look at, but generally the reference range is 0.45 to 4.5, but clinical experience and research also tells us that anything above two, some resources will say 2.5 is questionable for hypothyroidism. So me, I will treat people. That doesn't mean medication, but I will start treating people once it gets above two, 2.5 and, and clinical experience and research tells us that, but still the labs have not changed those reference range. And still the conventional system follows that. They'll let people go until their TSH is five or above. And then they decide, okay, maybe we'll put you on a medication instead of saying, Hey, the research tells us something different. Let's start attacking it now. Let's start, let's start, you know, that treatment process now so that you don't become even more hypothyroid. So yeah, absolutely. Optimal values. That sounds similar to, to type 2 diabetes. I had on the show yes. Emily Cornelius, mm-hmm. and she's an insulin resistance dietitian. I don't know awesome. if that's her official title or not, but you know, <laughs> that's what she deals with mostly. Yeah. And we we're saying that when you are type 2 diabetic, you didn't wake up type 2 diabetic. You were insulin resistant, and then you, I'm sorry, you were insulin resistant, then you're pre diabetic, then you're type 2 diabetic. And it takes a long time to develop. Right. But then you don't get tested until you're type two diabetic. And by then they're like, oh, you're type two diabetic. Let's start putting you on medication. Versus if you look at where you are now, when you're insulin, for example, I don't have any stats to back this up, but I 100% believe, and I'll probably die saying this, that everyone who's overweight is insulin resistant. If you understand how the human body works, right? What does the body use to store that excess glycogen? Insulin. Right. Yep. So if you have all that fat, your body is producing more insulin than it's supposed to, but eventually your body is going to become deaf to insulin, right? Leads you yep. into pre-diabetic, pre-diabetic and type 2 diabetic. So that's why I've, most people who are type 2 diabetic are overweight because it goes hand in hand. Now, type 1 is a different animal within itself, but that type 2 is a lot of that can be helped with epigenetics, diet, and lifestyle. So that sounds very similar that to me where we don't test yeah. until it's out of control. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and that's interesting you bring up the insulin resistance piece because that's also very common in people who have Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism. And so I'm very frequently testing insulin levels and insulin reference range usually around two to 25. I want to see it less than 10. So absolutely, I want to catch that early and prevent it from happening in the first place. Because if you can prevent it, then you're also preventing all the damage, especially to like the microvasculature that feeds the kidneys and the eyes and the heart, all that kind of stuff. You're preventing all the things that happen as a result of uncontrolled diabetes. Like, why wouldn't you get ahead of it? You know, prevention should be the model, not sick care. And we are in a sick care model right now in the U.S., yeah, so that uh, that bucket of ice cream may not be doing any favors, people. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Not saying I don't eat ice cream, though. Not saying I don't eat ice cream, but anyway, put it in context. Put it in context. Love it. Let's just talk about hypothyroidism because I have a yeah. lot to learn myself here. So yeah. we're talking about Hashimoto's now, right? So mm-hmm. what's the connection between hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's? If you kind of break down what Hashimoto's is as well. 
Yeah. So when we think about hypothyroidism, the most common cause of hypothyroidism is going to be Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is also known as autoimmune thyroiditis, um, chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis kind of goes by a couple of different terms. We often just call it Hashis because that's a lot easier, but Hashis accounts for probably over 90% of hypothyroidism cases in the U.S. versus in other countries, underdeveloped countries, it's going to be an iodine deficiency that most commonly causes hypothyroidism. We that doesn't happen as often in the U.S. because we iodize our salt. So we've kind of corrected that iodine deficiency piece, but it's the Hashimoto's that we need to pay attention to. So with Hashimoto's being autoimmune in nature, we have to think about, okay, well, what are the risk factors for someone developing Hashimoto's? Typically, there's going to be a genetic predisposition, meaning that someone in their family has some type of autoimmune disorder, may not be Hashimoto's, could be celiac disease, could be um, lupus, could be any number of autoimmune disorders, but there's going to be some family history typically. The hard part is, is that if there's a family history of Hashimoto's, Oftentimes people are undiagnosed, especially older generations. Um, they just know that they have hypothyroidism and uh, Hashimoto's was never ruled out for them. So sometimes the family history is not clear, but pretty much always there's a genetic predisposition. And then we think about, well, what's gonna trigger that Hashimoto's to turn on, right? What triggers that autoimmune process? Almost always there's gonna be some type of gut issue and that comes back to nutrition, right? If your nutrition is good, your gut's healthy, right? So there's almost always some level of leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability. Um, in my patient population, I often see there being a significant history of stress. And I always like to mention that stress can be a good thing. Stress is not always bad, right? Exercise is a stress, right? But that's a good thing for the body. But when stress is excessive or prolonged, overwhelming to the system, that's when things start to shift. That's when the immune system does not work as well as it should. So I see stress as a huge factor. And even good things can be stressful. You know, having a baby is a beautiful thing, but it's stressful, right? Getting married, beautiful thing, but that can be stressful. And so even those types of things can lead into this. Um, sometimes it's looking for chronic underlying infections as being a trigger. Um, I mean, there's a whole host of things that can be triggers for that. So once that autoimmune process starts, what we see on the labs is elevated antibodies. So there's two main antibodies that we check. There's TPO, also known as microsomal TPO antibodies, and then thyroglobulin antibodies. The problem is that in the conventional system, when they are, let's say you're going in for like your annual physical, they may run a TSH. That's about it right? And TSH is not even technically a thyroid hormone. It's a brain hormone. So you're only checking that, like, what is the rest of the, what is the thyroid gland actually putting out? So that's a little frustrating. And so I always check TSH, free T3, free T4, and both of the antibodies. If someone has the presenting symptoms at my, at this point in my career, I'm pretty much only seeing thyroid patients. I have, you know, some patients that have been with me for a long time that maybe don't have thyroid issues, but I'm pretty much running that panel on all of my patients. Now, there's going to be a small subset of population that doesn't actually have positive antibodies, and that's when I'll run a thyroid ultrasound to check and see, especially if I'm really suspicious that there's an autoimmune thyroid issue going on, because some people will only show evidence on their ultrasound of that autoimmune activity. So they'll have what's called heterogeneous tissue. So typically the thyroid glands would be pretty smooth, but if it's got this lumpy, bumpy appearance, that's a sign of inflammation and usually correlated with autoimmune thyroid issues. 
And then people with Hashimoto's are going to be more likely to have an enlarged thyroid gland, depending on where they're at in the process. It could be large or it could be small. If there's enough thyroid cellular destruction, it could actually be small. But typically when they're seeing me, it's going to be an enlarged thyroid gland. Um, they might have nodules, might have cysts. So there's other things that we look for. But that's going to be how we diagnose it. But the treatment approach of somebody who has primary hypothyroidism without Hashimoto's versus someone who has hypothyroidism as a result of Hashimoto's completely different in my book. But in the conventional system, everybody gets levothyroxine or Synthroid and that's it. And that's, you know, they wash their hands, they're done. Nobody talks about nutrition. Nobody talks about lifestyle. Nobody talks about stress management. So it, you got to address all those pieces when it comes to autoimmune. And that's going to be similar for most autoimmune conditions. If you've got celiac disease, if you've got rheumatoid arthritis, if you've got lupus, you have to look at those lifestyle pieces for sure. Gotta look at the lifestyle pieces. I I read an article on CDC a while back and it mentioned epigenetics, which is the lifestyle pieces what we're yeah. talking about. And I'm paraphrasing because I can't even find that article anymore. But I remember it was saying that, or it was more of a speculation. They didn't say it hundred percent, but I definitely believe this to be the case that epigenetic factors have a larger impact than our genes and our genetics. And we know this, you know, practicing in our field and what we do, but mm -hmm. it's really true. Like, you know, when we look at our DNA for a long time, doctors or scientists thought that a big piece of our DNA was this junk DNA. Like this is junk, it doesn't do anything, it's junk, right? Which, how does that even make sense? Like you have right. two PhDs and this is what you come up with, like seriously? <laughs> so, you know, like, but that's what they thought, you know? And now we're realizing that what we thought was junk DNA can actually have a larger impact on our actual DNA. So, and so we really have to like home in and realize the importance of epigenetics, you know, t turning on and off certain genes. You may be prone to something because like asthma is my thing. And mm -hmm. I know that if I go back to an AKA normal diet, I might probably have asthma problems again, just because I'm more prone to it. But if somebody can eat the same yep. things I was eating, and don't have any asthma problems whatsoever. I have an interesting story too, because I was, I was, I always share that by now it's two and a half years and I'm off all my medications. And mm -hmm. the gym where I work out two years ago or somewhere around there, I remember the time frame. a couple of years ago, they lost power and I trained in the heat and I trained fine, but I had a little bit of a breathing issue. Like I felt it on my chest, not to where I need an inhaler, but I felt the difference. A few weeks ago, they lost power again, not because of Hurricane Ian, but before <laughs> that. And it's in, you know, towards, it's in summer, and I worked out in the heat, no breathing problems whatsoever. So two years later, I actually got better, not yep. worse. I'm about to hit 40 years here, so I'm about to be an old fart, and I always tell people <laughs> that. I am, I'm... I, 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 I'm definitely an old fart, but it's okay because I love being an old fart, looking and performing and feeling the way that I do. If this is what it means to be an old fart, I'll take it any day. Yes, yes. And I'm really, really, I'm saying that is really to tell people that it's possible. There's a lot that you can do for yourself with epigenetic changes. A lot that you can do for your own health. And I am a living testament to that. Her clients are, my clients are, really stop and think about what you can do for your life and for your health. But enough of my voice, let's go back to the expert here. So we're talking about, we talk about hypothyroidism, we talk about Hashimoto's. Now we're going to get into the, the, the overactive thyroid, right? The hyperthyroidism, right? So what would, yep. what would, what doesn't, what's an active thyroid and what are some common symptoms? 
Yeah. So this is essentially being the opposite of hypothyroidism, right? So instead of everything kind of being slowed down, everything is sped up. So when we look at the labs, instead of the TSH being high, it's going to be low, right? And instead of the T3 and T4 being low, it's going to be high. So they got way too much thyroid hormone. I think the best way to describe it is almost as if you've had too much caffeine, right? Maybe, maybe you did a scoop and a half of your pre-workout, <laughs> right? And you're really feeling oh, people can be sweating, they can be losing weight. They can feel like they've got heart palpitations, um, have insomnia. So really just running on all cylinders and having way, way, way too much thyroid hormone. And that I don't see hyperthyroidism as much as I see hypothyroidism in my practice. But the interesting piece is that people with Hashimoto's can vacillate between the two, especially early on in their diagnosis or if their their condition is uncontrolled. And the reason for that is when somebody has Hashimoto's, you have to imagine that the thyroid cells are being destroyed if the autoimmune process is out of control. And so as the immune system is attacked, the thyroid to do is going to release that thyroid hormone into the bloodstream. So people will have this, this vacillation between hyperthyroid symptoms because they have all this thyroid hormone in their, their blood, but then that cell also died. So once that hormone's released, everything goes down. So people with Hashimoto's can actually have both hyper and hypothyroid symptoms. But when we think about hyperthyroidism, that also can be from autoimmunity that can be coming from Graves disease. So there's autoimmune markers that you check for that as well. Again, I don't see that as often in my practice. I mostly see Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, but uh, Graves disease is certainly something that I've treated in the past. They have different sets of medications that would be used for that versus hypothyroidism, but essentially the lifestyle piece is not that much different. It's not that much different because at the end of the day, right, you're trying to regulate the same gland, the same system. So the, a lot of the nutrition pieces and exercise pieces will be very similar. Uh, makes sense. And everyone, so the audio cut out for like five seconds, oh, but sorry. no, well, it's, you know, it's, it's technology. What can you do? Same <laughs> technology for that, but we got, we, the, the bulk of what you said was there. So that's fine. That's absolutely great. But just apologize for what just kind of happened to everyone. There's some stuff that's outside of our control here. Now, I have a follow-up question that I didn't plan to ask, and I didn't email you to ask you. So if it doesn't work, I'll do what I want. I'll just take it out of the show, right? <laughs> so you talk about hyperactive thyroid, right? Mm -hmm. is, it, is there any kind of connection with someone who like struggles to gain weight? So not someone who's overweight, but someone who struggles to gain weight. Is hyperthyroidism sometimes connected to that? Hundred percent, hundred percent. So it's a, it's the opposite of hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism folks have trouble losing weight versus hyperthyroidism folks can absolutely have trouble gaining weight because their metabolism is just super revved up, right? Their hearts pump in. They usually have high pulse rates, right? So absolutely, they can have trouble gaining weight. Mm -hmm. Ah, and what to listen to that because. When I talk about this as a weight management show, I'm not talking about just fitting your bikini to look nice. I'm a real, or I'm gonna say boy shorts because people, I wear a bikini, right? So, you know, it is what it is. I'm not making fun of women, but people are gonna think that I say that. So, what the heck, right? Speedo, let's just say Speedo, everybody wears that. So, it's not just, just about fitting into your Speedo, right? It's really sometimes some people struggle to lose weight, some people struggle to gain weight. And it sounds like in your, you're talking about someone who struggles to gain weight. One of the issues may be an overactive thyroid and low TSH levels and um, yep. high to E3, T4. So something to yeah. think about or to work with an expert like Dr. Stone over here. 
Yeah, because people, you know, with my patients who do have hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease, you know, initially when they're having trouble losing weight or gaining weight, I'm sorry, uh, you know, everyone always says, oh, what a great problem to have. And I'm like, yeah, until you have it, you know, when you're eating all that food and it's just not showing up on your body and you're essentially undernourished, you know, that that's not not any better than being overweight. So I always like to, you know, tread lightly there because it's not always fun to not be able to gain weight. Follow-up question to that then, is it then possible with, some, with someone who uh, has um, hyperthyroidism, right? I overactive thyroid, if I, you know, I'm using the right terms here. Mm-hmm. Is it then possible that that person may be BMI, they can't really gain weight, but they are still over fat? Oh, absolutely. It's what we call skinny fat, right? So you can be... Uh, deconditioned is how I like to think of it. You could have lack of muscle mass right? More fat tissue, but still be underweight. hundred percent. I see that all the time. Okay. So there we go, everyone. There we go, everyone. Pick up them weights, pick up them. Yes. Weights. Or better yet, <laughs> work with an expert, work with an expert. Yep. Now, with that being said, I have a gift for everyone. Everybody knows beginners to the hack of the episode, but before I do so, I have to tell you about Heal from the Amino Co. Heal is 100% science-backed essential amino acid formulation designed to reduce recovery times and improve physical function by accelerating muscle repair while helping you maintain healthy inflammatory response. We're just talking about inflammation, right? Chronic inflammation. See, the EA profile of HEAL was originally developed to help NASA astronauts maintain muscle mass in space, then refined to help everyday people experiencing prolonged periods of inactivity. See, amino acids are essential for the synthesis of protein, and we know the importance of the synthesis of protein. I have an article on a positive net protein balance. Um, enzymes, hormones, neurotransmitters, metabolic pathways, mental stabilization, and just about every function that takes place within your body. I drink heal in the evening. Actually, I'm drinking it right now as I'm doing the podcast. I already worked out earlier today, so I'm drinking Heal in the evening because the formulation has whey protein concentrate. It has the, the blend of essential amino acids. It's absolutely brilliant along with creatine, so it gives my muscles what it needs to heal and recover. But check this out. There's a recent clinical trial that compared one scoop and two scoop amounts of Heal with high-quality whey protein. The net balance between the whole body protein synthesis and breakdown were measured, and the response to heal was found to be three times larger than whey protein on a gram-to-gram basis. So I, haven't, I think I mentioned this in my last, my last episode, but my goal is I'm trying to hit 15 miles per hour on my sprint speed. And drinking heel because of how much I train, not just running, but you know, squats, you know, I train legs, I train my full body. Drinking heel has helped me to recover so I can get closer and closer to that sprint speed. And again, I'm a 40-year-old, well, 39-year-old, about to be a 40-year-old bar, right? But my supplement protocol, along with my diet and nutrition, is helping me get there. And with that being said, Visit aminoco.com slash Zico Health. You get 30% off heal and all the amino acid products. And of course, 
The website's going to be in the show notes and in the description of the episode. And with that being said, on to the hack of the episode. Here we are. Can diet and exercise improve hormone health? 1000%. You can't improve hormone health without diet and exercise. In fact, I tell people all the time, you can't just take your meds and think that's going to fix something. And that's whether we're talking about thyroid hormones or sex hormones like progesterone, estrogen, testosterone. If I'm going to prescribe testosterone for somebody, I'm going to make sure that they're also lifting weights in the gym, right? And making sure that they're getting enough protein and making sure that they're, you know, getting the adequate, getting adequate amounts of, of nutrients. So absolutely those make a difference and they're, they're a requirement in my book. That's foundational stuff. If you don't have that, there's only so much we can do to, to go, you know, to, get you better. You know, all the supplements and medications in the world can't do what, what good nutrition and movement can do for you. Follow-up question. Another question I wasn't planning to ask, so they're going to test it out and see if I can throw off our game here, right? So is there a difference of weight training versus, let's say, cardio endurance training as far as its impact on hormone health? Sure, absolutely. And so I, there's room for both. Right. So I think we should have some cardiovascular training, um, but the bulk, I mean, we definitely need strength training. And again, you know, my population is women. And so you have to remember women were often, I mean, we're the cardio bunnies, right? Get on your, get on your little elliptical and do that for an hour. And that's your workout. That's not going to, that's not going to do what you think is going to do for you. Right. It's not going to get you to a place where you have healthy hormones. If anything, it might actually create more stress, right? If you're overdoing cardio, cardio has its place, but if you're overdoing it, then what can happen is that it can affect cortisol levels. So cortisol is your stress hormone, right? Again, stress is a necessary part of life. But if you're tanking out your cortisol day after day after day, running on fumes, eventually what will happen is that cortisol will drop, right? Might be high at first because your, your body's trying to make a lot, but eventually it'll drop down. And cortisol is in what we call the steroid hormone pathway. That's the same pathway where we find progesterone and estrogen and testosterone. And one of the very common patterns that I see is cortisol dropping down and then progesterone drops. And the way I think of it is kind of like hypothyroidism where your body's going into preservation mode. Your body will push towards survival before it will push towards reproduction, right? If you're in a place where either you're going to live or you're going to make a baby, well, it's going to make sure that you live first. <laughs> if you can't live, you're not going to make a baby anyways. And so it'll downregulate hormones like progesterone, right? In order to accommodate for the stress that's there. So Yes, there is a difference. I think both are necessary, but a lot of women are afraid to strength train or they think it's going to make them bulky and look like a dude, all of these things. So I have to undo a lot of those myths for women uh, and give them examples of, no, you can be super lean, right? In fact, the way to get lean, in my opinion, is to lift weights. And if you're not building muscle mass, there's so many benefits that you're missing out on. Right. So muscle is one of the places where our body converts. So let me back up a little bit. Your thyroid gland, when it makes T4 and T3, about 80% of what the thyroid gland makes is T4. Only about 20% is T3, but T3 is more biologically active. So we rely on other tissues, namely the liver. The liver does the bulk of it, but also muscle will convert T4 into T3. So if you don't have adequate muscle mass, that conversion is not going to happen as well as it should. 
right? We also know that having appropriate muscle mass helps regulate our insulin and our glucose levels, things that people with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism often struggle with. We also know that starting in our 30s, right, there's that process of sarcopenia where we are, as a process of aging, losing muscle and it increases over time. So you better start, like if you're in your 30s and you haven't started building muscle, start now because you're only going to lose it as time goes on. So there's so many benefits to building muscle and it's not, you know, necessarily to look good. I mean, that's a great side effect, but what I talk to my patients about is I want you to be able to play with your grandkids. I want you to be able to get up and off the floor. I want you to be independent, right? And be able to use the bathroom by yourself. There's so many other benefits to it. It's not just about, you know, bulking up and looking good. <laughs> That's so true. And you know what? I, I do get that a lot. You know, I don't, I don't want to lift weights. I don't want to look like a man. Da, da, da. And I'm like, That's just so much. I could say just a myth uh, within itself. And I have a short on weight training versus cardio. I don't remember when it is anymore, but, and I did, I did break that down because the outside spectrum is I get people say, look, I lost a lot of weight and I weight train. I didn't do a lot of cardio. Well, mm. cardio is not, in my opinion, as important for weight loss, but it is mm -hmm. important for your health. Yes. And we got to specify that. That's what I call cardio, cardiovascular system, mm -hmm. right? You're training that system. So that's mm -hmm. important. But if you think about it from a biological standpoint, we as humans are not meant to run around for no reason at all. Like, right. <laughs> like our ancestors, you know, they walk until they found something they needed to chase and they chase it and they kill it and they eat and they move on or they drag it or they're going to it. We're, we're designed to walk and lift everything. Spread. That's what, mm -hmm. that's what we're built for. And then in times of when we need to go for it, we're going to go for it. That's how yeah. we are actually designed as human beings, not yeah. to, because whenever we're running, and that's what, when the body the body is designed, we're running, like you're talking about our cortisol level raises, our body thinks we're in danger. So if we're constantly going, 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 then our body constantly thinks we're in danger. Then cortisol and adrenaline just keep firing, 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 firing. That's why if you realize I can weight lift, even though I don't prefer to train any kind of training too late, but mm -hmm. closer to bedtime, if I were to weight lift, I can still go to sleep. Versus if I do cardio, even like three or four hours before my bedtime, I'm going to struggle because it takes a lot more time for that cortisol level to drop, right? Because yeah. body, it's constantly, it's still in that fight or flight mode when I'm trying to relax. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm a huge fan of doing, like when I think about cardio, I think about doing sprints, right? Using that row machine and going hard. You know, I have even just recently had a new patient come on who's a marathon runner and she's training for a marathon this month. And I told her, I was like, listen, you know, I'm going to keep you at a certain level, but once that, that marathon's over, that's when your healing's going to start. We're not going to heal anything while you're running as much as you're running. And she gets that now she sees, you know, we did labs. She saw the numbers. She saw that when she did have a little bit of a rest period, she felt a lot better. So she understands that it's actually been detrimental for her. And I get it. I mean, you know, we know running releases endorphins, but at what cost, right? So there's always that balance of, you know, do it in a way that we're intended to do it the way nature intended. If you're close to nature, you're always going to win. So so that's my my philosophy. For a long time, and now everyone we're just geeking out at this point. For a long <laughs> time, we thought that athletes are always the healthiest people in the world. Mm -hmm. Where some athletes are, but a lot of times they put their bodies under so much stress. Um, is it Adam Erickson? What's his name? No, Christian Erickson. Sorry, he plays mm -hmm. for Denmark, I believe. And in the Euros a couple of years ago, he's the best player on the team. He fell out in the on the middle on, while they were playing. Because of a heart issue that he had, even though he's super fit, 
mm-hmm. still had an issue because, and part of it was because of how much stress he puts on his body. I don't, I think he retired. I'm not sure if he is. And I think he was early thirties, right? Mm-hmm. And he's super fit. That's why when it comes to being healthy, it's not even just about a look or your performance, but there's yeah. a lot more that goes into it. So everybody stop and think, you know, we need, we need to have a balanced approach. It's really where we're really going with there. We need to have a balanced approach. That's probably the yeah. like hack of the episode I ever had. Could I carry it on to like three more questions? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, you know, we see it all the time where people, uh, you know, have pictures on, you know, social media, the internet, and they're like, "Well, they looked healthy." I'm like, "Yeah, let me see their labs. Then we'll talk about how healthy they are." Right? Somebody can look a certain way, but I have plenty of of you know weight, you know, competition weightlifters who have insulin resistance, right? Because they're eating tons of rice and tons of carbs and you know nothing wrong with carbs i'm not demonizing that but there's going to be a point where you know it's it's having a detrimental effect so yes looking a certain way does not necessarily mean that you're healthy you can be skinny you can be you know fit but i want to see the labs and that'll tell me whether or not something's actually healthy that's right show me the labs baby (laughs) with that being said tell my audience how they can get in touch with you Yeah. So the best way to really get in touch with me is probably going to be through Instagram. If you're not on Instagram, you can go to my website, but on Instagram, it's drstoneaz. So drstoneaz on there. If you go to the link in my bio, you're going to see all sorts of options. You can download my book. You can get to my website from there, which is drstoneaz.com. You can, if you're in Arizona and you want to become a patient, you can apply there if you want to do a virtual consult. So go to Instagram, check out the link in my bio, check out my page. That's going to be the best way to connect with me and send me a DM. I'm always down for chatting with people. That's right. And of course, her contact information will be in the show notes. I don't remember what I did the first show notes. I think they were zukahill.com slash Carolyn Stone. I'm thinking. However, <laughs> regardless of what they were, these are going to be zukahill.com slash Carolyn Stone 2 with the number 2. So Love hopefully it. I'm building on what I did before, but I don't know. I guess we'll figure it out <laughs> as time goes along. And with that being said, thank you, Carolyn, for being on the show. This is excellent and enjoy the rest of your day, okay? Yes, thank you. I appreciate you so much. We'll do it again. <laughs> We're going to do this. That, that, that one's going to be zukail.com slash Carolyn Stone 3, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining the Matter Over Mind experience. If you got good content out of this or any of my shows, save, subscribe, and share it with anyone who needs this information. Remember, Always take the scenic route and enjoy the ride.